Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. I heard a, a little unusual situation that happened a little while ago. I heard about a, a man who'd realized that uh, it was his daughter's birthday. And like a lot of men, he'd left the buying of the present till the very last minute. In fact, he'd forgotten. Anyone identify with that little problem? Yeah, most men, most men I should think. Um, realized his daughter, who he loved dearly, was, um, it was her birthday. And she loves dolls and things like that. So he was driving home, thought, I'll stop at the shop, buy a present. Sees a shop selling toys and things, and sees a Barbie doll in the window, and he rushes in and says to the guy, how much is the, the, the Barbie doll uh, in the window? And he said, well, which one? Uh, he said, we've got a whole range. We've got Barbie goes to the beach, Barbie goes to the ball. We've got Barbie goes to the beach is 1995. Barbie goes to the ball is 1995. Barbie goes shopping, 1995. Um, Barbie goes on holiday, 1995. Sounds like everything's 1995. Anything else? And the, the guy says, well, we've got Barbie gets divorced. That's 375. They said, 375, why is it so expensive? He said, well, because you also get Ken's house, Ken's car, you get, you get Ken's cat, his dog, his boat, and you get all his furniture. So I so, hope I haven't touched a nerve in anyone's experiences. But um, uh, love is fantastic when it works. It ain't fantastic when it doesn't work. Um, is it possible that love can go wrong? Yes, is the answer. It is, but, um, but, but love, we know from Scripture, is from God. And God is uh, the author and perfecter of all these things. And, and God created what love is. And, uh, and so it's not surprising that as we think about love, we'll be reflecting strongly about what the Bible says about it. But you may be wondering, why are we going to talk about confronting betrayal this morning? And the reason we're talking about confronting betrayal is because it's very much in the Easter story. And if you like, today symbolizes Palm Sunday and, uh, and that final week of Jesus' life before um, he willingly gave himself up for us. And, and it's a, so in a sense, it's a serious week, and so we take a serious topic. But until you really look at it, you don't realize quite how much betrayal is significant in this biblical narrative of Jesus' journey. And so we're going to look at it, but we're going to explore a little bit about love for a few moments and, uh, and just think about what we know about love. Um, I did a little bit of research, and psychology today made this statement, love is one of the most important yet most misunderstood emotions we experience. And I think that's probably true. People get very confused about whether, they, well, whether they're in love. I suppose you know if you're in love or you know whether you love somebody. I guess you do, but, but do we really understand love? And, and the, the truth is... Um, we don't really get it sometimes, but love can be very much in our minds a binary, it's this or that. And often I think we have our, um, you know, the love languages, for example. The one thing I don't like about that whole concept of love languages is we almost pigeonhole ourselves into, if it's not that, it's not love. You know, if you haven't spoken my language, then you don't love me. Well, I'm not saying that's not a good thing to learn, but it's not true that someone doesn't love someone if they don't happen to speak that language. Um, so there's things we need to wrestle with. Now, Psychology Today talked about 10 findings that they uh, wanted to report on, and they published this 
Uh, I've only pulled out five because the other five I thought would be quite familiar to us. But uh, there's research um, evidence to, to show that a lot of what we know about love is real and, and things that we can do with regards to love, you know, can, we can change our experience of love. And, and there were five points that they, made a, they, they drew out, and this is five that I would, I'd put on the screen. We can increase our capacity to love. And you may not feel that you can increase your capacity to love. You may feel like you're completely wrung out of loving any more than you currently do. And you may feel that uh, what you are is what you are. That's it. But actually, I would challenge you. Think about this. You can increase your capacity to love. You, you are probably boxing yourself in to a particular pattern of behavior. And you may well not be really exploring what love is all about. Um, even as a follower of Christ, you may be very stuck in a very narrow view of your experience of love. Love is way more than physical things. It's a big emotional side of life. And, and, uh, but it comes down to choices. We can increase our capacity to love. So don't believe the lie that you can't. Um, love is not just in your head. Love affects your whole body. It can extend your life and make you healthier through your life. So there's a lot of good practical reasons why understanding love better is actually going to help you live a better and more fulfilled life because love is going to bring something more than just a, a sense of well-being. It actually will health, healthily help you. Uh, third element, if we focus on love, we can enhance it. Um, you can enhance it. And... Uh, um, I mentioned in the earlier service, there was a, a time um, when I was younger that I really, I, I, I felt like certain things weren't good and I decided to lock myself down and keep myself away from being vulnerable in the area of love. I just, I just didn't want to, I wanted to bring the shutters down uh, for a, a season in my life. And, and there were reasons for that that were private to me and I just felt that I, I don't, I don't want to, Make myself vulnerable, because love makes you vulnerable, doesn't it? It's the nature of love. Love is, creates a huge degree of vulnerability. And actually, the, I would say this, the coward's way out is just to pull the shutters down and say, I'm not letting you in, because it, that's not going to help us. It won't help you, and it won't help me. And I remember as a young believer realizing I had to confront that in myself, that I had literally built an emotional wall in certain situations because it was easier for me just to do that. And, and to allow that vulnerability to come out was, was, was something I chose to do. And that's partly why perhaps now, and when people come to faith, and they often do in this church, if I'm inviting people to give their lives to Christ, for me it's such a huge thing, because it's eternity, it's life now, that actually it causes an emotional response in me. And sometimes you may see it, that for no obvious reason I start to choke up when people or I do a salvation call, or people respond. And it's because, because it means so much to me, but it means far more to them and their future. But if we focus on love, we can enhance it, and we can enrich it. It's not a fixed quantity. In other words, you can multiply the influence of love in your life. You, you can. You can it's, it's not a binary thing. It's a multiplication thing. Um, you can impact um, so many people through what you do. You can, you, you're not locked into just loving one person. In fact, I would encourage you to think about how could I love other people more because you can do it, but you can also choose not to. You can choose to lock down your willingness to love others. Even as someone who follows Christ and maybe of a faith journey, you, you can do that because you don't want to 
make yourself vulnerable. Uh, and we have to face those sort of things. You have to work on that. Um, and love is contagious. People really do respond to love. Uh, and you know whether someone's a loving, kind of person because they tend to be very inclusive and warm and, and joy. Now, that, that's them being vulnerable. Uh, and it, but the thing is, when people experience love, uh, they, they will respond to it. And, and that's why the Bible is so clear about it, that we need to learn to love even our enemies. It's difficult. It's not easy. The Bible doesn't... You've got to be a really strong person to start to understand the power of what the Word of God is, is presenting to us because it's got the power to change the world. That's the whole point. And some of the things that we think we can change the world with just won't change anybody. But love has the power to break through anything and break into every situation, transform anything. So independent research starts to support these thoughts. One writer wrote... Uh, you don't love someone because they're perfect. You love them in spite of the fact that they're not. But we, our human nature is so bizarre. We just chop people away if we don't like what we're involved with. Or you know, it's, maybe it's just me. Is it just me? <laughs> we do, don't we? We lock people out of our world, and and we make ourselves very unapproachable at times. Maybe you're brilliant at it, but many of us are not, and, and it's something we need to see. Um, but what la- damages love the most? And I was thinking, what's the opposite of love? And I'm thinking, oh, well, it must be hate then, you know, or fear. You know, perfect love casts out fear. So is it, but actually, it's not the right question. It, it's not what's the opposite. It's what damages love the most. And the thing that damages love the most, in my view, is not hate. It's betrayal. And why do I say that? Because as I was thinking this through and praying about this message, I think hate often comes out of a very weak understanding of situations. It comes out of a bigoted, often misinformed um, view about situations or, or, or something that causes prejudice. Hate can come from something that actually is not informed. And if you think about a lot of hate, it's actually rooted in total lack of understanding. And so often, when we start to understand people's real situations, hate can, it goes away. Have you seen those, uh, um, those syndromes where someone who's taken captive and they've they held custody and, and they start to, they're the prisoner of, of the guard and uh, uh, Stockholm Syndrome, that's what it's called, isn't it? Um, there's, there's a syndrome that once you start to get to know <laughs> the guard, you start to hate them less. And, and because knowledge comes in. So it, but the thing that damages love the most is not hate with its little understanding. It's betrayal because it's got much more understanding. Betrayal has, it by nature, got understanding that hate doesn't. It knows who you are. Uh, one person knows all about you, knows your weaknesses, knows your flaws, knows your vulnerabilities, knows your sensitivities, knows your, the things you've done wrong. And actually, betrayal comes through that journey of understanding. Interesting, isn't it? But what does to betray mean? Well, dictionaries will tell you in terms of human relationships, uh, to deliver someone up to an enemy. And this is the, we're looking at the Easter week this week, and and of course Judas is the villain of the story. And uh, um, to betray is to deliver up to the enemy. And, uh, you know, and, and potentially die for that being given up. So betrayal in an absolute sense is that. But betrayal is more subtle than that as well sometimes. Um, betrayal can be to desert someone in a time of need. When you know someone's in great need and you just w- turn around and walk away. You, t- you just ignore the need. You don't, you know, 
you can't support every situation. But if you're in a situation where you can make a difference and you desert someone, you know, there's a, there's a dynamic in there that would call that betrayal. Um, to violate a confidence is betrayal. Where someone tells you something that is private and you take it upon yourself to share that private information with somebody else, that is a betrayal. And that's why the Bible condemns gossip so much, because you may just think it's okay to chat about something that belongs to somebody else. It's not. That is a betrayal. Yeah, I'll tell you another betrayal that's even more subtle, that's not even on my list. It's the betrayal of knowing something that can damage somebody else and doing nothing about that knowledge. In other words, you allow circumstances to unpack themselves and to damage that person. That's also a betrayal. It's a betrayal not to inform someone when you have the power to make a difference, to change a situation, and you don't do it. That's a betrayal. Does that happen in life? Do these things happen in life? They happen a great deal, let me tell you. And we forgive ourselves some of these minor betrayals because we, we think of the greater good of my self-interest. <laughs> That's what we do. And what's that called? Selfishness. That's what the Bible calls it. So, um, but have you experienced betrayal? Have you experienced someone really close to you doing something they should never have done and other people finding out? Have you ever found yourself in a situation at work where you've been betrayed, where you put trust in someone to do something, maybe your boss or a colleague, and they went and did the complete opposite, and you then found out later they'd done something, and in fact, it was all a big game to them? Have you felt betrayed because of the confidence? Perhaps you've been betrayed by someone you loved intimately, a husband or a wife. And, um, and you betrayed because you didn't tell them what you should have told them. You concealed stuff from them. You betrayed them because you had a separate life. You had a separate set of agendas. It's all betrayal. And it's, it's done knowing that there's going to be a problem. And it's self-justified, let me tell you. And it's wrong. It's wrong. And we have to get to grips with that. Why do we talk about betrayal? This is a tough subject, isn't it? Everyone's gone quiet. Because... On the final week, or in the final week of Jesus' life, while God was preparing to deliver to the world the most amazing statement of his love, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the biggest thing the enemy did was to bring betrayal into the process to try and undermine the very thing that God was doing. You see, when there is great love, the enemy will try and cause betrayal in situations. And we've got to be wise to it. We've got to be wise. We've got to understand. So what is betrayal? Matthew 26, 14 to 15. Here he comes, the villain. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So let's talk about Judas for a second. How many people do you know called Judas? Got any friends called Judas? His reputation has gone before him. No, I've never dedicated a child called Judas. So we had a great dedication yesterday. Uh, it was fantastic. Um, little Daniel Prince of Safu Jaye was here. It was probably the best part of 100 people in the room, and some of you were there. Great to celebrate a new life. No one calls their son Judas. <laughs> it's just got too many connotations, hasn't it? Um, so what do we know about Judas? Well, we know that Jesus chose him. Jesus, this is the Son of God, chose this man knowing his flaws and knowing his weaknesses, chose him. He was number 12 on the disciple list back in Matthew 10. But between Matthew 10 and Matthew 26, which is obviously the first book, letter in the New Testament, first encounter of Judas himself, between 10 and 26, 
something went wrong. There's just nothing, there's doesn't, there's nothing in Matthew about what Judas did. But what we do know, and we can infer from Scripture, is that Judas was with Jesus pretty much daily. He saw him. He encountered him. He understood what he did. He, did, he saw the miracles. He saw the amazing things, the way the crowds were drawn to him. But there was something going on in Judas's life that caused him not to see the right thing. There was something in Judas's heart, in his life, that was hidden. And so you see, you can come to church or be involved in the gathering of believers for years. Judas was there for three years. And you can conceal from everybody else what's really going on underneath the surface. That subtext will eventually kill you. And it killed Judas. Because when you hide things, when we hide things, if we are tempted to hide things, it gives a foothold to the enemy. And we may look, for all intents and purposes, like the real deal. But underneath, there is a very, very dangerous undercurrent that's sitting there waiting to go off. And that's what was going on in this situation with Judas. You see, in that greatest demonstration of love, the enemy went for the weakest amongst the team and exploited Judas. So not only was Judas, in a sense, naive and malicious in one sense, but he was also exploited fully. And that's what happens to people when they allow this second life to exist. Now, back to modern day. What does society think is going on around this topic of betrayal? Well, again, Psychology Today in 2014 did some research, and they, they described betrayal as an epidemic in society. An epidemic. Easy to catch. Um, their conservative estimates of betrayal of trust between close friends is that it, um, in terms of abuse amongst women, 35 to 40% of women are abused in close relationships. And believe it or not, 30 to 35% of men are also abused. Now, how on earth, whether it's psychological, physical, I don't know. But, but betrayal of trust is, 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 is part of this conversation, that, that actually you don't have the right to abuse. No one has the right to abuse. And betrayal of trust demands to express itself, and it does in this area of abuse. Infidelity, about one half of the people they surveyed um, say a partner cheated on them. So they know half of them were cheated on. And 40% admitted to it. It's rife in society. It's rife. And people self-justify and work out a plan and it's okay. That, that is betrayal. Uh, the Office for National Statistics in 2017 said, this is a positive thing actually, divorce rates for opposite sex couples in England and Wales are the lowest now, 2017, since 1973. It's good. If you look at the curve, Divorce rates were going through the roof, but they've actually started to come down a little bit. It's 40% lower than the peak in 93. That is a good thing. Um, but this is an interesting thing I noticed, that the number of divorces among same-sex couples has grown 300% between 2016 and 17. You know, this whole liberation of love and freedom and, and doing things in a sort of human way, look at that for a statistic. Uh, and 74% of those... Um, Marriages, dare I say it, you know, are the where the problems are is amongst women. So people are not as happy as perhaps media make out about the, the new arrangements going on in society. But um, betrayal is an epidemic, and it's it will affect us, and it will it'll get itself into your teeth and my teeth. Someone once said the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. 
Now, you probably will try and figure that out and, and argue it the other way around. But actually, when you think about it, it, that's the nature of betrayal. It doesn't come from an enemy. It comes from someone you know very well. That means you and I are all vulnerable to betraying somebody else. We're vulnerable to it. So we need to learn from the narrative of Judas's life that someone so close to Jesus who saw, touched, experienced, smelled, benefited, all that stuff could still be the one through which the enemy worked, what the enemy would do. So how does de- uh, betrayal develop? We'll look at John 12, 13. Um, now, now we're kicking into the, the, uh, the story uh, or the, the narrative around Easter and Palm Sunday. And six days before um, the Passover meal, which would have taken place on the Friday, six uh, days beforehand, Jesus with the disciples together, so Judas is with them, are invited to dinner at uh, Lazarus's house. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus was the one who died. And they said, come quickly, Jesus, come and heal him. And they put him in, in they wrapped him up and put him in a, in a tomb. And then Jesus said, he's, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> and they're all crying or whatever. And the tomb is open and Lazarus comes forth. Well, his sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, were there. And of course, now Lazarus is very much alive. So he invites Jesus uh, to, to come for dinner. They're on the way to the Passover feast on the way up to Jerusalem, and they would have been a couple of miles out of Jerusalem at this point. Um, and then Mary, during this mealtime, took a 12-ounce jar of, by the way, 12 ounces, about the size of a large coffee mug. That's quite a lot of perfume. Um, took a, lo- a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, by the way, which only grows in the Himalayas. That's why it was so expensive. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance really potent. It's um, essential oil. It comes from a, a plant that flowers um, and would have been very valuable. And, uh, and so she pours this on Jesus' feet. And we know what that is. That's an act of homage, worship, recognizing who he is. It's also a kind of, it, it's all relevant to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, the whole, um, you know, anointing him in his death. Uh, she wouldn't have known that, but it's symbolic. But either way, God is doing something to the moment. And the house is full of this amazing fragrance. Meanwhile, Judas is there. And uh, Judas has got a double life. Um, he's unstable. And that hidden life is actually a smell of its own. It's concealed by the smell of the fragrance. And you know what I mean? It's more of a metaphorical expression. The sin is rotting inside Judas because he's allowed it to exist. He's allowed it to be there. So how does betrayal happen? Going on, John 12, 4 to 6. Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, that's Jesus, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. You see, that subtext in Judas' life was he was stealing. He was stealing. Now, Jesus, I'm convinced Jesus knew about it, that the other disciples didn't. Look at what he says, um, sell the perfume and give the money to the poor. Well, he would have seen Jesus feed 5,000 men, let alone the women and the children. He would have seen miracles of provision from Jesus multiple times. He, he would know that if Jesus is God, that God could have given anything at any time to anybody. He was giving life to people, healing people. They're in the house of a man who's been given life, been brought back to life, for goodness sake. He's sitting in front of a miracle. And he says, well, he should have sold the the perfume and given the money to the poor. He didn't care about the poor because he was a thief. You see, he was blind to everything that was real around him because of this undercurrent 
of deception that was in his life. Where it came from, we don't know. Maybe it came from some bad experience in the past. I don't know. Maybe he had an expectation that Jesus would be something that he wasn't. And that leads me to an in, a good point. What causes someone to have a complete subtext in their life, being the presence of Jesus Christ, being God's presence, and still have this thing so powerfully defining who they are? How does it happen? It happens because of the, partly the way we think. When we have expectations that are not real and they're not met, we start to fight back against what we see. And that's what Judas had. He had unmet expectations. He had an expectation of who Jesus would be and what Jesus would become. He also had an expectation about himself, what he would be and what he would become. Now, we don't know from Scripture what that expectation of himself was, but we can only speculate he was stealing, but maybe, maybe he thought Jesus might be the Messiah that would overthrow the Romans. Maybe he had some other agenda. I don't know. Maybe he just liked hanging out with the disciples because he got some kind of kudos from being with the miracle maker. I don't know. But whatever it was, he was not on the same page as the rest of the disciples. And as a result, an unexpected trigger came along in his life in the shape of a perfume bottle. You wouldn't think that a perfume bottle could trigger a transformation of someone's life, but it did. because it. And that's the thing. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Something... An act of generosity, an act of grace, an act of giving, of respecting, and life was a trigger for a man's life to come to an end. It was a trigger. Judas, he was triggered by a perfume bottle. And that's the trouble. If you keep your life secret and hidden, and you think it's okay to do that, sooner or later, you will hit a perfume bottle. You'll hit a trigger. You won't know when it's going to happen. It'll just happen. And one day, something will happen, and the thing you think you're controlling and getting away with will suddenly, bang, it'll come out into reality. And that stuff that we have not dealt with in secret becomes visible for the first time. And it comes out like that. That's what happened to Judas. The trigger went off, and now the enemy can come in. The enemy now will exploit the vulnerabilities of, of this guy, Judas. Now, you may think, oh, it's confined to to the Bible, this idea of betrayal. But uh, there's a, quite a famous person called William Tyndale. If you've never heard of him, just remind you of who he is. Um, he, William Tyndale was the first man to translate the New Testament and the first five books of the Old Testament into the English language. He was raised a Catholic in England. His family lived in Gloucester. And um, they, they were, he was an academic. He spoke eight languages fluently, including most of the European language. He spoke Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Um, he was a very, very smart man. And Tyndale realized that the way the Catholic Church in his generation were controlling people using Latin scripture was doing a huge amount of damage to people. He realized that the ordinary men, men and women of our country, or those who spoke English, they hadn't any idea of what was really in the Bible. They were just presented with the, the need to pay effectively a priest to absolve them from sin. Uh, the, the sin was the intermediary. Um, the, the, there, was, there was a whole control thing going off. And, and Tyndale realized it. And this is the time of the Reformation. So Martin Luther in Germany at Wittenberg, he was an academic. He's realizing the same thing. And you've got others. Erasmus, the Dutch scholar, is, um, you know, these guys are realizing that People need the, the scriptures in their native language, if, otherwise they won't understand them for themselves. And we know the word of God is living and active, 
and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, so this word of God has got to get into us and fuel us and help us not to get caught out like Judas got caught out. It's got to be alive. And this guy, Tyndale, knew it. And I think God led him. And, but as soon as he set out to translate from Latin to English, of course, the state was on his case, Henry VIII. Where does the title Defender of the Faith come from? From the Pope. Because he was out to stop people translating the scriptures at that time. Um, so anyway, Henry, uh, William Tyndale disappears over to Europe, goes to Germany, to Cologne, meets some of these other people linked to the Reformation. And, uh, and the only way to catch him was to find someone who would be willing to betray him. And that's what happened to him. This is a major move in history, the word of God coming into the English language. And the enemy positioned a man called Henry Phillips to be available, to be the deceiver in that situation. Henry was a, an English guy. He, he, uh, his family were wealthy. He deceived his own father, stole money off him, gambled it away, got broke and went over to Europe and discovered he could ensnare William Tyndale, became a friend, kind of wormed his way into relationship amongst the... Somehow he did it. And then he caused... William Tyndale to be uh, taken captive in Antwerp of all places in 1535 and he was executed. He was burned at the stake and they strangled him before as an act of mercy. How about that? He looks a lot older than 42, but that's how old he was when he died. But what about a life lived, hey? But um, incredible. He, uh, he, he actually translated the New Testament from Greek through Erasmus's text. Amazing. So that we could read the Bible and we take this for granted so much. Amazing. And some of the idioms of um, the, the Bible that we understand today, uh, a thorn in the flesh, do you recognize that from the Bible? If I say a two-edged sword, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, as white as snow, as you sow, so, as you sow, so shall you reap. You know who invented all those expressions? William Tyndale. They're, that's why they're in our Bible. 85% of everything he wrote ended up in the, the King James version of the Bible. It's incredible. And much of the way we read the Bible today is linked to him. But many of us don't know about him. But extraordinary what he did. So the only way to catch him was to betray him. And someone did it as a friend on the inside. How did Jesus confront betrayal? So Jesus now knows that Judas is there. Well, he knew about it anyway. and He knew the trigger had been fired. Um, so Jesus and the disciples, including Jesus, Judas, head down for the Passover meal. And as they're preparing for it, they gather in that upper room, well and truly into the now what is the Easter story, and Jesus does one of the most amazing things in his life. He's sitting with those disciples and he takes off his robe. He takes a towel in one hand and a basin of water in the other. And he goes. This happened. And he kneels down, picks up their feet one by one and washes them. An act of incredible servanthood. An act of incredible humility. We're talking about God, the creator of the universe, is on his knees washing their feet. And he's doing it to a man who's about to betray him. What would you do if you knew someone was about to be? I, I'm not sure you'd be quick to get the, the, the bucket of water. I'd probably tip it over. I, I know, I'd probably look for something a little bit more potent. Um, but Jesus does it. Why does he do that? Because he can see beyond the betrayal. He knew that this man was going to become a pawn for the enemy. And he, and he, but it still affected him. It said, now Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit 
And he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Because when you walk a journey with people and they betray you, it really, really, really hurts. And you might be in the room right now and you know when you've been betrayed. I find it hard sometimes to think back to, and I, I try not to remember betrayal moments because because you don't want them to affect your life, but they really, really do. They take a long time to, to deal with. And sometimes, you may be in the room today, and you've still not been able to deal with betrayal that's happened in your past. You know, right back into your childhood, right back into your early days of relationships. Who knows what's happened? You know, others probably don't. But you've carried stuff, and, and Jesus was deeply troubled. So does God understand betrayal? Yes, he does. But Jesus did something contrary to human nature. He just worked with it and worked through it. And of course, Jesus knew it was Judas, and he dips the bread into his bowl and hands it to him. He didn't even tell the disciples. If you read the storyline around it, you'll see that they, John and you know, one of them, they just had a little, what's going on here? And Jesus leant over to him and said to Judas, hurry and do what you're going to do. And none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. That, that is a burden. That's a burden. That's a huge burden. That is a huge burden. You know, we know from Matthew 26 that Judas really never knew Jesus. He was blind. He was blind to the circumstances. He was blind to the way the enemy was going to use him. He was blind to his own self-righteousness. He was blind to his own expectations. You know what? He was blind to who Jesus was. In Scripture, the only record of him talking to Jesus is as rabbi, teacher, not as Lord. He didn't recognize Jesus as Lord at all. He just saw him as a teacher. And of course, he was a teacher, but he was way more than a teacher. He's the Messiah. He's, He's God. And Lazarus didn't see that. Sorry, not Lazarus. Um. He was a betrayer. He was close, closer in relationship to many and brought the greatest hurt. So Judas left at once, verse 30 says. So he left and Jesus just let him go. Went out into the night. You know, if you read the text around this, you'll know that the other disciples think, where's, where's Judas gone? Oh, he's gone doing what he normally does, and that's to go buy bread and pay for bits and pieces of food. They thought, oh, Judas is just going to go do his usual thing. And of course, that is exactly what he was doing, his usual thing. <laughs> it wasn't to buy bread. It was to go betray Jesus. Because underneath all of this, the subtext of his life was that of one who was ready to betray. John 13, 34, 35. How did Jesus confront betrayal? This is mind-blowing now. Mind-blowing. In that moment of incredible betrayal, where he, you know, did Jesus humanly want to go and do what the Father wanted him to do? No, he didn't. But did he do it? Yes, he did. And we're going to celebrate Easter next weekend, of course. But Jesus, in this moment of dealing with betrayal, said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. (laughs) Love each other just as I have loved you. What an incredible thing. How did he have it in him to do that? You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Isn't that incredible? In that place of incredible betrayal, where he knows the clock now is ticking, Judas is doing his thing, and at the same time, he comes out with this statement, a commandment I give you to love one another. Judas was blind. He was blind. 
And his blindness to everything going on around him led to his own death. You know, it says, if you read the text a bit further on, that he didn't realize what was going to happen. I think, of course, he must have realized. But if he was blind to knowing that they were going to take him captive and try and execute him, how could he not know that was going to happen? But he seemed to not realize because he was blind to what was going to happen to Jesus. So he betrays him. And he's got the 30 pieces of silver. He goes back to the temple and says, look, I didn't know this was going to happen because he was blind. And that's the trouble. If you live a double life, blindness gets in everywhere and you convince yourself you don't know what's happening. In fact, you'd see it, but you don't realize it. And so what did he do? He threw the silver coins on the floor in the temple. And they turn around and say, well, what do we care? What do we care? The enemy doesn't care about you having a subtext in your life making yourself vulnerable to betraying another person. He doesn't care about that. What, what do we care? Matthew 27, verse 4. What do we care? They don't, the enemy doesn't care. But the people we damage care. And the people whose lives get wrecked by us when, we, when we're careless care. And in the end, of course, the enemy got Judas. And he hung himself. So blindness leads to destruction. So let's lift it up a gear. How can I confront betrayal in my own life? How can, I confront, how can I make sure that I don't become like Judas? How can I make sure that subtext isn't there? There's a trigger point where the perfume comes in and suddenly my life gets just opened up and suddenly the tumblers fall into place. How can I make sure that doesn't happen? How can I confront it? How can I make sure that I'm going to be okay? It's to live a clean life. That's the only way. You've got to live authentically. You've got to live clean. You've got to live the same on the inside as you appear on the outside. It's no good hanging out with Jesus. You've got to really follow him. You've got to really know him. And you've got to know him more than an ideas man. You've got to know him as God. You've got to know him for who he is. And if you don't, if you just, just carry the idea that, oh, I, I go to church, that isn't going to save the situation when it hits you. You're going to need to know that you're following the man Jesus, who is also God as Lord and Saviour. You've got to know that he's really the Messiah, that he's really God. And you've got to live real, not have two lives, because that other life will catch you out. And what does it say in James 4 too? You want what you don't have. These are the agendas that people carry. So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Would God have ever stopped giving to Judas if he'd asked him? If, Jesus, if he'd asked Jesus to help him, would, would Jesus have said, no, that's not true? He could have solved everything way before the problems hit. So there's a start and there's a stop. How can I confront the dangers of betrayal in my own life? I've got to live a clean life. So what do I have to do? I have to stop certain things and I have to start certain things. The things I have to stop are living with a sense of entitlement. It's my right to have this out of relationship. It's my right for this in life. It's my right. Because when we live by rights, 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 everything else becomes wrong, wrong, wrong. Because you're self-righteous. That's what happens. When you live by rights, when it's your entitlement, if you don't get what you want and you therefore make a judgment about every situation around you, you're living in a very dangerous place. It causes you to judge others. It definitely stops you exercising a Matthew 18 principle of going and talking to your brother if there's a problem. If a brother sins against you, the Bible says, go speak to them. Go speak to them, not speak to 25 other people and share your entitlement to them. Bring them into your entitlement. 
It says, go and speak to the person. What happened to Jesus? Gethsemane. It's dark. It's at night. He knows. He knows what's about to happen. And out of the shadows, it wasn't just Judas that walked out of the shadows. It was all the people that were following Judas with their torches and their swords and the rabbis and all the other guys, the religious folks, are following him out of the shadows in Gethsemane. Would you greet the Son of Man with a kiss? Is what Jesus said. Because Judas had the gall to go and kiss him, to betray him. And that's what happens when we don't get our lives properly submitted to Christ. We live two lives. We live in that other space. So we've got to stop living like that to protect ourselves and everybody else. Got to live the real deal. So what do we stop doing? We stop living with entitlement and we start to live fully centered on Christ. Fully centered on God. Is that too much to ask? No, because it's life and liberty and freedom. And God says, just ask me for what you need and I will provide everything you need. But don't live by entitlement. Live by faith, the Bible says. Live, start doing that. So I can intercept the damaging dangers of betrayal way before it ever happens in my life and and stop being part of the statistics in society. But how else can I confront betrayal? Perhaps I'm someone who's been betrayed. Perhaps I'm someone who has been damaged by careless hearts and activities of somebody else. Maybe you know all about this and it still cuts you up and you, are, you know the pain of this. And David, King David wrote a Psalm 55 and a few of the verses, 20 to 22, just pulled out bits of them. He understood betrayal. He betrayed, this isn't David, he's talking about someone who betrayed his friends. He may have been inferring to Judas for all I know, but he betrayed his friends. His words are smooth as butter, but his heart is war. But in his heart is war. His words are soothing as lotion, but underneath are daggers. And that's the trouble with a betrayer. When you are betrayed, it all sounds like it's good, but there's a hidden life in there. And then suddenly something happens and you never knew the person you're with. You never knew it. You, you know, stuff has been held back from you. It's not been communicated. You've been betrayed. And what does David say in verse 22? Give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. Now, you may have been through a very difficult time of betrayal in the past. You may be in one right now. You may be coping and surviving and feeling, I feel battered by this. Two bits of guidance right now. Firstly, to stop. Stop thinking as though we're victims. God didn't design us to live life like that. We're not victims. We're not victims of the enemy. We're not victims of somebody else's wrongdoing. We're not allowed to live like that. We mustn't live like that. We mustn't live injured. We mustn't live a continual damage situation in weakness. We've got to stop thinking that it's going to be like that forever because God can step in. God can step in and God can transform it and turn it around. So start to understand the healing power of a relationship with Christ. Start to understand it. Start to understand that you're making good decisions and just simply starting to trust Christ with all these areas of pain will change you. It will make you strong. You'll start to have a new set of values and you'll be able to trust people again. You'll be able to trust Christ. You'll be able to trust your life into his hands. You'll be able to 
walk with more confidence. And that's where we want to be. But the enemy will try and not only do damage the first time, but do damage forever. He doesn't care. What's it to me? He just wants to keep you pinned down. And I think we want freedom. We want freedom. As people who have been affected by this epidemic in society, we want freedom. And today, you can have freedom. And maybe you're in this meeting and you have still been carrying the pain of betrayal in one of a myriad of different ways, but it's still hurting you. God can step in there and separate that out of your life today. It can happen right now. It can happen today. And we're going to pray in a few minutes, but right now I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come. Come and we're going to sing a song. We're going to reflect on this. Am I in that dangerous place of becoming a betrayer myself because my life is in two places? There's the outside and the inside. Or maybe I'm one of many people who have been through a journey where betrayal has happened to me and actually it still hurts. And maybe it's limiting you in some way. Maybe it's holding you back. I just want to remind you that Jesus walked through betrayal and did everything his father wanted him to do. So we're going to stand and sing. We're going to stand and sing. I'm just going to pray and then we'll kick into this song. So please stand with me this morning. Allow the Holy Spirit just for a moment to just work in your heart, reflect on what's been said. This is, we're coming up to Easter, and Jesus went through the things that we go through. He can totally identify with our journey. He knows about it, and yet he was victorious. There's hope for every one of us. So Lord, Lord, we give our hearts to you right now to trust you. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Over to you, Anna.